0: Please turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. When we think of all the responsibilities that we have as Christians, sometimes it's easy for us to be, to feel inadequate, ill-equipped, to accomplish what we're supposed to do. And if that's the way you've ever felt, if that's the way you feel now about your responsibilities as a Christian, then I would encourage you to listen up. Because this morning, the Spirit is going to teach you through the inspired writing of the Apostle Paul that as a Christian, you have what it takes to accomplish God's purpose. But it doesn't come without work. Philippians chapter 2, let me read the first 11 verses. This is the Word of God. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves." Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Believers who find their joy, their greatest joy in the progress of the Gospel, will unite with other believers for the sake of the Gospel. Believers will unite with other believers for the sake of the Gospel. Let me begin by showing you the first command, in, or the main command, I should say. It's in the first two verses. That believers must be united in Christ. We have this if statement, actually several if statements in verse 1. And then verse 2, make my joy complete. That actually is the main command, but it comes Along with it comes a phrase that modifies this main command, which actually acts as the primary responsibility. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. This passage that we're going to read is about the exaltation of Christ. It's about Christ's humility, but ultimately the main purpose of it is to show believers that they need to be united together in Christ. Christ is going to serve as our example But the primary uh, command that Paul is giving is to make my joy complete by being of the same mind. He begins verse verse 1 with the word therefore, which points back to the unity that he was talking about in verse 27 of chapter 1. The command there was to stand firm in one spirit, strive together for the sake of the Gospel. This unity was apparently being opposed and undermined by their adversaries. And, and yet it was the very thing that was necessary to stand up against the adversary. If you want to stop, if you want to stand firm, you need to be united together, like holding arms on a battle line, making sure that, that, uh, that we are standing united. And so in verse 1, he gives us four motivations. From these four things, we can draw motivation and encouragement to be united to other believers. So the main command, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. That's our responsibility. Be of the same mind. Be united. So here are some ways we can be encouraged or motivated to do that in verse 1. And there are four if statements that serve as motivations for us. The first, if there is any encouragement in Christ. So the first one I would call this the comfort of other believers. The comfort of other believers. We could... it this way more uh, more specifically to to I think what it means. If there is any encouragement of being united with other believers in Christ, that's the idea of in Christ there. If there's any comfort that you've ever received from other believers, then, he's going to say in verse 2, then be united. Paul just finished talking about suffering with other believers and that he too was suffering. Verse 30 of chapter 1 but the point was that all of the comfort that the believers receive in knowing of the other people's trials other believers' trials and Paul's trials is a comfort ultimately become because it's a comfort that comes from Christ 2 Corinthians 1 says that that um God is the God of all comfort and Paul prays there may the God of all comfort comfort you in your sorrows so you be able to comfort other people when they come along and, and face the same sorts of sorrows. And from that, what we learn is that the, the arm or, or the tool that God uses to comfort believers is other believers often. And, and so we need to learn in our struggles. We need to learn in our sufferings and, and, and learn from the comfort that God gave us because we're going to need to use our experience in receiving comfort to give comfort to other people. And so the first motivation, the first encouragement from which we can draw the the, uh, the the strength to unite, is the motivation of the comfort of other believers. The second is Christ's love for us. Christ's love for us. He says, "If there's any cur- encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love." And I think. Uh, the love that's being talked about there is ultimately the love that comes from Christ. Certainly, it's not divorced from the love that we receive from other believers because even that love that we receive from other believers is sourced in whom? It's sourced in Christ, right? And so, so that love is most clearly seen in the cross. And so if you've ever been comforted by other believers, that's the first motivation. The second is if you've ever uh, received Christ's love, then this should give you motivation to unite with other believers. The third is Spirit-empowered partnership. Spirit-empowered partnership. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, we are, as believers in Jesus Christ, partners in the Spirit. We fellowship together in the Spirit. We all share the same Spirit. And so if there have been any partnerships that's, that have formed and if you're a member of this church you have joined in a partnership if that has happened then it's because of the common spirit that we have and let that be a motivation for you to unite even further the fourth is past friendship past friendship so the comfort of other believers Christ's love for you spirit empowered partnership and then fourth past friendship. If any, affection and compassion. Tenderness and compassion are words that are very similar. They have the idea of showing affection to one another. Paul's point is that if there's ever been a time where someone's come and broken down a wall that was between you and them, then use that as motivation to do that same thing to other believers in the church. Okay, so so let me try to summarize here verse 1. There's four if statements, and they lead to one then statement. So if, 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 then, verse 2, it's implied, then you ought to make my joy complete by being of the same mind. So be like-minded. So here's his point, as one commentator summarized. If there's ever been a time when you've been encouraged because of a of the common bond that you have with other believers, if you've ever had a time where you've been consoled by the love of Christ, if you've ever formed strong partnerships with other believers because of the Spirit that lives in you, or if you've ever been cared for with tenderness and compassion, then consider why that's the case. Why have you experienced that? Was it not because believers humbled themselves and showed that care to you. It can only happen when believers are seeking unity and they're doing it with a sense of humility. And the point is that if you've experienced those things and they have come because other believers have been willing to humble themselves and care for you, then, verse 2, Paul says, you do that to other people. You be like-minded and serve other people in that way as well. Paul is giving us motivation to be united together. That we should strive together for the sake of the Gospel. It's the picture of, of the gymnastics coach going to one of the team members and saying, you can do this. It's the picture of the catcher settling down his pitcher when the game is getting tense. Jesus, through His words, comes alongside and in the midst of trouble and persecution, says, I have experienced unity with other believers. I've experienced unity with my Father. And I know that you can experience that same thing. So be of the same mind. So here's the main command. Verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. In other words, be united together, and the result of that unity is going to be greater joy for me, your leader. Paul's greatest joy comes when the gospel progresses in the lives of others. This is very similar to what John says in 3 John 1, verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than to know and to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John's greatest joy was in the progress of the gospel. Paul's greatest joy was in the progress of the gospel. Jesus greatest joy was in the progress of the gospel our greatest joy ought to be in the progress of the gospel as it exalts god and so he says make my joy complete by being united here's how you see the pro- the, the gospel progress in a church like ours you unite together around the same purpose and he gives a couple of ways of, a couple of things to describe that in verse 2 Maintaining the same love, the second part says, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. So, how do we become more united as a church? We could ask. And Paul says, here you do. Here's what you do: you maintain the same love that you received. You unite together in one spirit around one purpose. Have you ever experienced undeserved love from other believers? then reciprocate that love to other people who may be at times unlovely. Maintain the same love that you have received from Christ through other believers. And be united, the second, two, uh, the second and third ones, united in spirit and ten on one purpose. Now when talk, Paul is talking about unity, he's not talking about unity for the sake of unity. Unity at any cost. Unity coupled with tolerance. That's not the idea. It's actually unity for the sake of purity. It's a unity that's centered around the truth of the gospel. So we don't just unite just to unite. But but we're willing to unite around the truth of the gospel. Paul clearly would divide over those who rejected the gospel, right? He would cut off relationships with those who did not uh, either believe the gospel or who who lived like they didn't believe the Gospel, right? 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3. His point is to be united around one purpose. Not around any purpose, around one purpose. That's what the text says. If we're going to stay united around one purpose, the Gospel, then we need to guard ourselves against the potential factions that may come in. And we have to recognize that that, that may result in unfavorable circumstances. But we need to be willing to face unfavorable circumstances that may come as a result of our uniting around one purpose so that we can hold up what is most important, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, which exalts our Father. We must have something that is firmer than our desire to see our adverse circumstances go away. Our desire should be for something greater, and that is a bond of unity that is fueled by humility. And that's really where the next part of the text goes. We need to be united around one single purpose. If we've experienced the love from other believers, verse 1, then share that love with other believers by being united around one purpose. And that's not going to happen apart from humility. So, second main point is in verses 3 and 4. And that is, our unity must be fueled by genuine humility. Our unity must be fueled by Genuine humility. Notice verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Verses 3 through 5 are full of commands, but they all support the main command. What was the main command? Verse 2. Be of the same mind. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. So, what he's going to talk about now in verses 3 and following has to do with humility. But that humility actually supports unity. It It actually enhances unity. And so we could summarize verses 3 through 11 in this way Be humble like Christ was humble. Be humble like Christ was humble. The commands to be humble come in verses 3 through 4, and then the example of humility comes in verses 5 through 11. So our unity has to be fueled by genuine humility. So, first, Paul says in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Paul commands believers to be humble. And this is ex- it, it, he first expresses it by showing the opposite. He says in verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. John Calvin writes on this verse, empty conceit rears its head when people are concerned most of all with their own inventions and in implementing them. Does that describe you? Are you more concerned about getting your way than about getting along with other believers? Are you unwilling to yield your contrary view to the will of another? You see, Christians who are seeking unity in the church will not be selfish and conceited. Instead, they will be humble. So, first we see it in a negative way. Those who are seeking unity, they're not selfish. Instead, Look at the second part of verse 3. What does the text say there? But, with humility of mind, here's what humility looks like. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. So, if we think about the opposite of humility, selfishness. Selfishness is about stepping into the limelight, making sure that we get our way. But the opposite of that, the opposite of stepping into the limelight, getting our way. is not cowering into the background and hiding and doing nothing. That's not the opposite of selfishness. The opposite of selfishness is humility, which is submitting ourselves to the purposes of God. It's, it's acknowledging God's views over ours. Remember the disciples? They, they struggled with this. They struggled with humility. They struggled with selfishness. They asked Jesus, which of us will be greatest in the kingdom? James and John did, and the other ten were indignant because they didn't think of it first. How dare they? Remember Jesus' response Mark 10.45? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus said to the disciples in response to their selfishness, effectively the same thing that the Spirit is teaching us here. Look at the last line of verse 3. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Regard them that way. Treat other people as if they're more important than you. Now, they very well may not be more important than you. Like with Jesus, right? His humility showed... And the fact that He treated people as if they were more important than He was. And so, it's not saying anything about your status or your ability, but but we ought to treat one another in that way as if they're more important than us. We're going to see this in the example of Christ when we get to verses 5-11. through The people that served Jesus were not better than them, but He treated Him as if they were. And so as a church, we have to be careful about how we treat one another. We can't regard ourselves as more important than everyone else. We can't all walk around acting like we own the place. In fact, even the qualified, functional leader of the church, the pastor, is called to be the greatest what? The greatest servant of all. So, Even the one who's in the position of the highest leadership in the church is supposed to treat people as if they're more important than he is. So, humility is not selfishness. It's treating people as as better than ourselves. Humility is further demonstrated in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Don't look out for your own personal interest. This is what humility looks like. It's not being concerned primarily with our own personal interests. Every time I teach the candidates for membership, I emphasize the principle of this verse. That as individuals, we need to guard ourselves from the consumer mentality, which says, when I come to church, it's all about me. It's about how I feel. It's about how people serve me. It's about whether I was ministered to. It's about whether my favorite song was sung. It's about whether people were concerned for me. That's the consumer mentality. But if you come to church in that way, you are robbing yourself and others of great joy. And that joy will only come to you when you see yourself not as a consumer, but as a provider. You need to recognize that primarily what is at stake is not your feelings and your needs and it's not my feelings and my needs. But rather, it's about the needs of others. I've seen dozens of church members and church attenders throughout my Christian life who have come into church with a consumer mentality and they are some of the most unhappy people I've ever met. Because life is all about them. When they don't get their way, they can make life miserable for everyone around them, and, and to an extreme, they may even take someone to court over something that happened to them in a church setting, which Paul would completely frown upon. First Corinthians six seven. It would be better for you to suffer mistreatment and see no justice than to drag the name of Christ through the mud as you bring disunity into public court. Friends, if we're going to pursue unity around the truth of the Gospel, we can't do it apart from humility. We cannot do it apart from humility. And that means, look at the last part of verse 4. Looking out for the interests of others. So negatively, it's not about our own personal interests. It's about looking out for the interests of others. What if we regarded everyone else in this church body as more important than ourselves? What if we regarded everyone else as seriously as we regard our own needs? If we regarded their needs, we were concerned about their needs as much as we're concerned about our own. How much different would our church be? You see, for unbelievers, this is completely unnatural. Think about the needs of others. But for Christians, this is what we're called to do. In fact, we have a premier example, the prime example in Jesus Christ, verses 5-11. through We have responsibility to be united as Christians. That can't happen apart from humility. And humility needs a proper example. Because it doesn't come naturally. And so we need to see what humility looks like. And we've got that example. So number three, humility doesn't happen apart from a proper example. Verses 5-11. through Humility doesn't happen apart from a proper example. And who is that example? Paul points to him in verse 5. Have this attitude. So this attitude of humility that leads towards unity. Have this attitude in yourselves, church, which was also in... Christ Jesus. So, when you consider your responsibility to be humble and to treat people as more important than yourselves, consider the example of Christ. Do you want to be a part of a church that is so unified that even the powers of hell can't stand against, against it? Then you need to follow Christ's example, the paradigm that He has set up, that He was humble even to the point of loss. And he recognized that there was delayed glory. We'll see both of those in this passage. That Christ was humble enough. Uh, uh, he, he, was, he was so humble that he was, be, he was willing to accept loss. And then secondly, that He expected delayed glory. That's, by the way, what humility is all about. It's about delayed glory. It's about recognizing that we're not going to get a reward from treating people better than ourselves in this lifetime necessarily. Humility often comes in the form of uh, of not being seen. People don't recognize what's going on. But that's okay. So if you struggle to be humble enough to work together with other believers around a common purpose, then consider the humility of Christ. Christ first was Humble to the point of personal loss. Christ was humble to the point of personal loss. Verses six through eight. Notice Christ's lofty position. Verse six: Who, although he existed in the form of God, that is, he existed eternally as God. The, the New International Version says, "In very nature, God." Even though Jesus was in the very nature God, he is a lofty. He he is the lofty God, but God the Son. He existed in the form of God, and yet he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Even though he was in that lofty position, he was humble enough to accept personal loss. The idea here is that he wasn't going to use his equality as an excuse to to avoid serving mankind. Like, well, you know, I'm... I'm God, so I can't really serve. Instead, He uses His lofty lofty position and becomes humble enough to the point of personal loss. And here's what He does. Verse 7, He empties Himself. He emptied Himself, taking on the form of a bond servant. So Jesus was humble enough to accept personal loss. What does it mean that Jesus emptied Himself? This is a hotly debated topic among scholars and I have to admit that it's not an easy thing to study. But let me just lay out the various options for what it could mean and then tell you what I believe it means. Okay, number one. Some believe that it means He emptied Himself of His attributes. He emptied Himself of His attributes. The original words of and can it be read, he emptied himself of all but love, and if you notice in our hymn book, it's actually been changed. He emptied himself and came in love, because the the original words I I think were actually not helpful because it sounds like Jesus gave up his Godhead, his his godness so to speak. He was no longer God, and that's not what's taking place. If he gives up his attributes, he's no longer God, right? He has to if he's God and man then he has to have the attributes of God. And so he didn't give up the attributes of, of his godness. Some suggest that he emptied himself of his attributes. Number two, others suggest, suggest that he only appeared to be limited in his attributes. He only appeared to be limited in his attributes. He would be like the secret millionaire or the undercover boss. You know, he's just kind of sneaking around as if he's not God, but surprise... The problem with that is that the text says that He actually became humble. He was humble. We follow His example of humility. So I I think that that does a disservice to what Jesus actually did. That humility is most profoundly seen at the cross. And so we we would minimize the cross by saying that He only appeared to be limited in His attributes. Number three, third option, is that others would say that that He emptied Himself of the use of His attributes. He emptied Himself of the use of His attributes. But we know that Jesus did not empty Himself, of course, of His attributes, but also the use of them because He actually used His attributes to accomplish great miracles. Like in Luke nine seven or Mark 2, Jesus knew what they were thinking. Luke 8.46, a passage that we had read I think last week is... Uh, a similar passage in Mark, when the lady touched him, he says, power has gone out of me. This is talking about some of the attributes that he has not as a man, but as God. John 5.23, he who does not honor me does not honor the Father. John 10.28, I give unto them eternal life. And so, Jesus is not giving up the attributes that he has, nor is he given up the use of his attributes. He still was able to accomplish what he wanted to as God. Fourth group of people believe that he emptied himself of the independent use of his attributes. Okay, and this is kind of a, you know, some of you might think, well, this is really technical, but but really that's the nature of this this discussion. Um, that he gave up all the rights and privileges of being king. Uh, and, and while this last one is convincing that. Uh, somewhat convincing that he gave up the independent use, that somehow he had to rely on God more. I think this last option is is the correct one. And that is that he emptied himself of the rights and privileges that he had as God. He emptied himself of the rights and privileges that he had as God. Notice how the text describes his emptying. Verse 7, but he emptied himself. And what did he empty himself of? We could say, well, it doesn't tell us, but instead it says this. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So his emptying is not as if something's being taken away from him, but something he's adding to himself. That he's taking on the form of a bondservant. He's becoming in the likeness of men. So the emptying is actually God the Son becoming man, it's a change of role. Further evidence is seen, I think, in verses 6-11. through Paul's using Christ as an example. Remember, this whole exaltation of Christ, we tend to take this passage and pull it out of its context and say this is all about Christ and His exaltation. And that's part of it. But it's actually designed to support a, a, a bigger point that Paul has at this point, which is to be humble. And when he's telling the believers to humbly follow the example of Christ, Is He telling them that they need to give up some uh, attributes or abilities? No. He's saying we need to put on what? The interests of others. It's not a losing of something that we have, something that's going to be missing now, but it's on taking on the interests of others. And so it's a change in position or status that while, yes, He is still God, He's giving up all the glory that He deserved as God. And He took on our interests. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8-9. He became poor for your sake so that you through His poverty might become rich. See, He's taking on poverty for your sake. For my sake. So here's the point. Christ set aside His own personal self-interest for the sake of you and me. And here's what Paul's larger point is we should do the same for other believers. We should set aside our own personal interests for the sake of one another and care for their interests. Notice the extent of this selfless humility on the part of Christ. The kind of humility that we should mimic. Verse 7, the middle of the verse says, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here's what it means that Christ emptied Himself. He took the form of a slave. He was willing to stoop down and do as menial of a task as washing the disciples' dirty feet. Think of it, the God of the universe who holds all things together with the Word of His power kneels down and washes feet. He's made in the likeness of men. We should be amazed that Christ would give up His rights and privileges as King to become a man. But we should be even more amazed at what it talks about in verse 8. That He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Christ humbled Himself. This humility on the part of Christ is not humiliation that was brought about by other people. That is, it doesn't say, the text doesn't say that they humiliated Him, although that is true. The primary point is that He humbled Himself. He was the active one in it. He was so humble that He obeyed God to the point where He would lay down His life in death. And if you don't think that's humble enough, notice what kind of death at the, verse, at the end of verse 8. Even death on a cross. The lowest, most degrading and humiliating death that a person could die was experienced by the King of the universe, Jesus, the Son of God. And if you don't think that the unity of the church is worth your humility and even at times your humiliation, then you don't have a proper sense of what Christ has done for you. And so I say we will not be properly humble until we adopt a self-disregard. A self-disregard that was was demonstrated for us by Christ. Christ was willing to be humble enough to accept personal loss. That's what humility looks like. Humility also recognizes the concept of delayed glory. Verses 9-11. through Humility recognizes the concept of delayed glory. Verse 9 reads, For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If Jesus suffered first and then received glory later, Should we expect anything different? You see, we are often looking out for our own interests and naturally we want our honor now. Honor now, suffering later. But it doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way for Jesus. For Jesus, His honor doesn't come until after He humbled Himself to the point of personal loss and we should expect the same thing. That we're not going to be honored, exalted, lifted up in the eyes of anyone necessarily until we first humble ourselves. Delayed glory. Notice the extent of Christ's glory in verses 10 and 11. Every knee will bow at His name. Not just believers and angels. Notice, of those who are in heaven, so believers and angels and on earth, We could say, well, maybe it's just talking about believers. But under the earth, what would that be referring to? I think we have to include demons and unbelievers, and even Satan himself will bow his knee at the name of Jesus. Every created being will bow the knee at the name of Jesus. Now, the text doesn't tell us when, but I can't see it happening based on my understanding of the end times before the end of the kingdom. Because there will still be pockets of resistance at that time. And I can't see it happening after Satan, the demons, and all of unbelievers are thrown into the lake of fire. So I think it has to happen between the kingdom and the eternal state, which would be the great white throne judgment. And so while the text doesn't say, I would think that it has to happen at that time. That somehow... Maybe there's going to be a trumpet fanfare. And then Christ is going to come in up to Mount Zion just with the streets lined with people. And as he, as they announce His name, maybe it's God the Father announces His name, every knee will bow. And we will do it happily, joyfully, in submission and adoration to our great King like we just got finished singing all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let every uh, let every knee bow to that sound of His name. But there will be many, those who are under the earth, who will bow their knee in reluctance and hatred. Not in adoration, but they will be forced to because He is the King. And the result in all this is that God the Father is glorified. Notice the last part of verse 11. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is not here stealing glory from His Father. F.F. F. Bruce, a commentator, says it this way, none can bestow on the Son higher honor than the Father has bestowed on Him. And so he's not stealing honor from God. God is granting it to him because of what He did. He was willing to humble Himself. So all of this, this exaltation of Jesus, this humility of Jesus, it's all meant to be a picture for us from Paul to show us what humility ought to look like. And when we're humbled to one another, we will come together, we will will be able to come together in unity around a common purpose. So let me give you three points of application this morning. Number one, church unity is possible and expected. Church unity is possible and expected. We need a church that is united around the truth of the gospel. And Christ's death guaranteed that we could do it, that it is possible. And Christ's death is also showing us that it's it's expected. That we have been given an excellent example of what unity requires. And what does unity require? It requires humility. We have to regard one another as more important than ourselves. We have to look out for their interests. The interests of one another. Christians who are spiritually mature are not looking out for number one. They're not looking to advance their own name. Spiritually mature Christians are considering one another. If all you think about is what you get then you are rejecting the attitude that was in Christ. You are not Christ-like. Spiritual maturity is about a sincere love for God and others that shows itself in real service that often is humiliating. And real service to other people means dropping the consumer mentality, removing our selfishness, removing our empty conceit. It means having more concern about the needs of everyone else in the body, even over our own. Isn't that what Jesus did for us when He came to the earth? He's more concerned about our needs than His own. Church unity is possible and expected. Number two, we must embrace the biblical concept of suffering first and then glory. Suffering first and then glory. We need to recognize that the life of a Christian is not necessarily a life of great prestige and honor often like the life of Christ. A life of disgrace and lowliness and hardship. And we also need to recognize that our acts of service, our suffering, never go unnoticed before God. We don't just need to recognize that there is suffering in this life. If that's all we had as Christians, we of all people would be pitied. But we recognize that that suffering has a purpose and it has an intended goal. That God ultimately will will be exalted in it and He will honor us. The glory will come. Our victory will not come fully until the next life. We can't enjoy the spoils until the battle is over. Suffering first and then glory. Number three, Christ is the only way to glory. Christ is the only way to glory. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as the only means of your salvation, if you are counting on your own personal goodness, or your nice personality, or your deeds, or your denial of really bad sins, if you're counting on those things to grant you a position before God, then you have a false hope, a hope that is found a hope that is not found in the Bible. The only hope we have to stand before God is to stand on the basis of Christ and His finished work, His righteousness, and His sacrifice. We need to recognize that He is the One who fulfilled all the demands that we needed to stand before God and be accepted by Him. One day, every knee is going to bow to Him. He can either... We can either bow to Him as our Lord or we can bow to Him as our Judge. He's going to treat us as one in one way or the other and it's going to be dependent upon how we treat Him in this life, how we respond to Him in this life. And I would suggest to you how you respond to Him today. If you haven't accepted Him, you need to accept Him today. You need to bow your knee to Him and your heart to Him today one day all of creation will join not for salvation it'll be it'll be it'll be too late at that point but our response to him today is going to determine how we bow our knee to him then will it be in joyful adoration submission or will it be in reluctant fear let's pray father your people, Your church is worthy of our greatest efforts toward unity. And so I pray that You would strengthen the unity of this church. And Lord, we know that that cannot happen apart from each one of us humbling ourselves like Jesus did, being willing to forsake the rights and privileges that we have and consider others as more important than ourselves. Lord, I pray that You would help us to be providers and to be thinking of clear ways in which we can help people in this church not to satisfy all of our little needs and wishes and desires, but to consider how we can do that for others to, to carry their load. Lord, help us in this. It, it requires a great work of Your Spirit. And Lord, we acknowledge that, that unity is worth worth working for. It's worth being humble for. And so, help us to pursue humility by being reminded of the great humility that's been shown to us by other believers when they consoled us with love and when they, they joined in partnership with us, when they comforted us during difficult times, when they showed affection and compassion. Or may we pursue this unity that You expect And have made possible out of great love for our Savior, which will result in great glory being ascribed to you. Lord, we want to honor you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.